Hello. How are you, everyone? Welcome to the next show um, and today's ninth episode. It has been the week of bands so far. Twitch temporarily banned Don Trump, YouTube banned the far-right content creators, and India banned TikTok, and then there's Facebook. So far more than 400 companies from Coca-Cola to Adidas and Microsoft decided to hold advertising on the social media platform in a growing protest over how it handles hate speech and further harmful content. This is forcing Facebook to take action. So platforms as well as countries take their sovereignty back it seems. And I'm super keen to hear your thoughts on this move during the show. So let me know in the chat, please, what do you think about this? Before we start the conversation, let me quickly introduce the talking heads to you. My name is Ina Feistritzer. I am and chief editor of the Next Conference and our various activities. Next to me in our sweet little Hamburg studio, but invisible to you, is René Deutschmann running the show as our producer today. And this show would be nothing with our fantastic co-host, conference curator and moderator, Monique von Dusseldorf, and, and trend watcher and keynote, David Metten. Our guest today, joining us from the beautiful city of Stockholm, up in the north of Europe, is Mark Adams. He has been appointed Chief Innovation Officer of Vice Media recently. Mark, thank you so much for squeezing us into your tight schedule today. Thank you so and much. What are your thoughts on brands boycotting Facebook? Um, I think it's I, it couldn't happen to a nicer company. Um, Facebook have consistently, my first investor was Sean Parker, who was one of the you know co-creators of, of, of Facebook. And he had some very strong things to say from the very beginning. If you look deep under the structure of Facebook, you'll find a man called Peter Thiel, who, if you don't have to dig too far to find out his political views and the way he sees the world, which is pretty, uh, Hobbesian or extremely, uh, dark, um, uh, the bottom line of it is it couldn't it couldn't be better and i hope that more brands realize that the deep structure of the system is being shown up by gen z and millennials are figuring out that there's actually a structure to these things and they follow the money they follow the power and brands have to realize that so congrats to everyone who's led on this movement interesting thank you for that and we'll be talking with mark about success successful brands of the 21st century and what it is that they do better than others in a bit. But before that, we'll jump right into David's and Monique's picks of the week. Yay, yay. Hello, thanks, Inna. Okay. Inna, you first, there yes, you go. Yes, me first, exactly. Um, so because we're all about media this week, for my picks of the week, I've chosen a cluster of stories that are all about disruption in the media industry. The first one I wanna to talk to you about is a story I've been following for a while. I'm sure lots of you have too. Um, Quibli, this is the $1.7 billion media startup founded by two titans of business, um, Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, from DreamWorks, one of the founder of DreamWorks, um, and Meg Whitman, the former CEO of Hewlett-Packard. Um, this was launched like in April with massive hype and the whole pitch was short form, very snackable video content. So it's like a revolution in video content. This is mobile first video content for the first time ever, you know, mobile first HBO standard drama for the first time ever. It launched in April and already it is in deep trouble, shall we say, deep trouble. 
Um, it's attracted about 2 million users, which is way, way under what they expected to attract. When you compare that to the 50 million plus users that the Disney streaming service has attracted, you can see how bad that is. And everyone's already asking themselves, you know, what went wrong? Why has this massively funded media startup been such a disaster? I can hear you asking for my opinion. I will, I will duly deliver it to you. I think it's in my view because people don't care about media formats and content formats. People care about people. And you sell great drama uh, by selling a story, by selling a window into the human soul. Like You don't sell great drama by talking about media uh, formats and mobile first and specifications. No one gives up about all that. And that's why this startup has not been the success they expected. Whereas, you know, Disney is right over there, uh, just selling incredible heartfelt drama and insight into the human condition. And that's what people want. And if it's two hours long, they'll figure out a way to make that work on their phone on the train to work. Okay, but look, that's not to say that new content formats cannot work. Check this out. Um, I think new formats are going to come increasingly from individual creators, not massive, very well-funded corporations. One example of that right now is the huge popularity and the growing popularity of chess on the video game streaming site Twitch. So if you look at the data, you can see that the number of hours watched for, uh, uh, for chess on Twitch has risen every single month through lockdown. Um, in May, it, it hit 8 million hours watched. Uh, the picture I think you're seeing right now is of the Botez sisters, two sisters who are extremely good champion level chess players and run a Twitch platform where they're playing like insanely good chess players. And yeah, people are watching hours and hours and hours of this stuff. Remember back in the day when everyone said this is a long time ago, you know, attention spans on the Internet are all going to be super short. No one's going to be able to concentrate for longer than five minutes. That turned out to be untrue in all kinds of ways. And one of the ways you're seeing now is that people are watching like two hour chess marathons on Twitch. Can you believe it? Um, that's just one fragment, though, of a much larger picture. There's going to be all kinds of individual creators finding all kinds of niches. The person I want you to look at here is a woman called Morgan Davison, who is finding an audience for her Instagram bassoon recital and practice video. So, you know, she has thousands of viewers watching her practice the bassoon, recite her pieces on the bassoon, improve on the bassoon. Musicians are finding all kinds of new ways to connect with audiences during lockdown. This is just one tiny shard of that, and we're going to see a lot more of it. Okay, my final story, because the disruption of media online has been converging with another huge online behavior for quite a while now, and that is shopping, that is online commerce. And in China, as many of you will already know, there's a highly evolved ecosystem already of live streamers who are all about demonstrating products and selling products to their audiences. So the, the e-commerce giant, the massive player in China, of course, is Alibaba. They have a platform dedicated to this called Taobao Live. Taobao Live is all about live streamers selling you stuff. And the most famous of these live streamers are like celebrities in their own right. They become hugely famous. They can make a fortune in the process. Again, just one angle on the scale of this thing. So the mid-year shopping festival began in China on the 1st of June. Taobao Live, the live streamers on Taobao, sold 2 billion yen, that's 280 million US dollars worth of product in the first 90 minutes. 
Okay, they they almost hit three hundred million dollars in ninety minutes of live streaming. That's how big this is. And you have celebrities, you have company CEOs all over Taobao Live. Live streaming is entertainment, but it's commerce too. And I think, and I'd love to hear Mark's position on this later. That is part of that. That convergence is part of the future we're going to see. The converge convergence of entertainment um, and selling. And of course, it's nothing truly new. QVC was doing it back in the day, but and this is. QVC for the for the live stream generation. That is me. What do you make of all that, Monique? 1.7 billion, and then you get it wrong with Quibi? I mean, 1.7 billion. You could do a bit of research or something. Anyway, yeah. um, the examples I've brought this week are all examples of synthetic media in action. I mean, for some of you who were there last year, Andy Pollan did a great talk at Next with an overview of all the synthetic media developments. And it's really worth reading. It's a long piece giving you all the insights. Um, and now that all media are data and algorithms are everywhere, of course, these things merge. And it's immensely interesting to both businesses and all kinds of creative people. So let's see. Let's see the first example. Um, this is done by NVIDIA. It's a promotional video, but what they do, it's a new project called StyleGAN2, developed by NVIDIA Research, and it uses transfer learning to produce seemingly infinite numbers of portraits in a variety of painting styles. So what you see on the one hand is all kinds of styles, and the, the window just goes over that and it depths the portrait on the right to the style you see on the left. It, it, you can also put a window in between two examples and then it will sort of make you know emerge the two examples so it's beautiful to see you know this is visual candy but it's also very interesting so learning styles applying this somewhere else um now in many of these synthetic media cases and and we can check the next example here um basically the computer guesses what something could be and it, this is really funny so you give it an image and the computer tries, you know, has learned on a set of images what could be behind it. In this case, they gave it cartoon images and then, you know, a pixelated image. And the computer tries to make it into a realer image. Um, but then, you know, sometimes it obviously doesn't work because if we stop at this image, exactly, we all know who that is. But the computer was trained on a set of white guys assumes that the person on the right is really behind that pixelated image. So something goes wrong there. Now, taking it back, so this, this was face depixelizer. I should mention it and you'll find the link later on the, in, the, in the chat or in the report. Um, the other next example, the generated pictures, um, I think is really interesting. This is the other way around. So here, this is a startup that is selling images of computer-generated faces, offering companies a chance to increase diversity in their marketing without the need for human beings. So based on stock photography, you have the capacity to create up to a million diverse models on demand each day, and customers can download up to 10,000 of these you know, faces of people that don't exist, but they're amalgated you know, based on stock uh, material. And you can say, you know, black, smiling, this age group, uh, long hair, and it will just generate lots and lots of faces. And uh, the company that does this, uh, the founder, Ivan Brown, has said it has already supplied deep fake faces to university researchers, jeans advertisers, gaming companies, and a dating site. Uh, that shouldn't work, right? Uh, anyway, so there are now all kinds of these examples out there. And if you want to see a truly creative one, there's actually one out there, uh, another company. 
an artist, it says this MP does not exist. So they generated all kinds of faces based on the British members of parliament and you have a whole new parliament there. Anyway, last uh, set of examples I wanna give is, is coming back to Facebook because you should realize that in these fields of you know, computer vision and VR and AR and, and learning with algorithms, Facebook honestly has the top academics in the field. So occasionally you have academic conferences where Facebook comes out and shows what they've been up to. Now the very first example, I mean, this is so awfully real, right? I mean, this is so close to reality. And what you can do is use these in virtual reality. But for instance, you can wear your own glasses, talk, and in virtual reality, that will be mimicked and it looks so real. And the second one is, um, real-time rendering, but another thing is where you, I mean, the, the, the next example they show with the lady, exactly. So you see her here in front, but the generated image can also show her from the side or the back. So it's, you know, using what's there and then just guessing what is behind her and they, they can make anything. And they're also working on these new holographic optics. They find a completely new way to record interaction with laser light and objects. So, you know, Facebook, leading the pack in this specific field with all the top academics as well. Anyway, that was all for me for this week. David, what do you think? Very interesting, Monique. I'm so glad to hear that Facebook's soon going to have the ability to generate photorealistic versions of human beings. It does, it does tempt me into, I mean, don't, wouldn't you like to have one of those made of yourself? Oh, yes. Out into the world? A very young, beautiful, tall. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Just add 20 centimeters or something. Yeah, like, you know, for me, I'd, you know, rewind back to 2005. Yeah, it would be, it would be amazing. I think it would boost, like, it would be a real boost to my speaking career. Um, all right, that is enough of that. It's time for something completely different. Um, as you've already heard, our superstar guest this week is Mark Adams. He's the head of innovation at Vice Media. He's here to talk to us about the disruption of media, the way to build brands in the 21st century, and a whole lot more. So so I've got a little bit of time and I, I really want to just rush through some, some, some thoughts I've been having about, and it all comes down to this, why are some of the companies that have been the most established names in all of our lives for so long losing market share? And who are they losing it to? And what is it that these new companies that are starting to gain market share are doing that's different? So I'm going to rip through this. It's going to be like you know, a whistle-stop tour, um, and it will probably make some sense, and sometimes it won't. So my world was, I was very lucky. I happened to be at the right place at the right time. Um, and, uh, you know, I was one of those kids that didn't have many friends, and I didn't have a girlfriend. And so what you tend to find with people like that is that they're very, very good at digital. And that was me. I was, I was quite good at digital, and I was at university. And long story short, I started to reach out and, and, and offer celebrities uh, my digital transformation expertise, um, which was essentially that I could build websites. That was it, really. And um, and long story short, I set up a kind of consultancy that did that. And, and, and then that consultancy got bought by William Morris Endeavor, which is a big talent agency. Um, and, uh, and I started to meet with people like Madonna, that you see there on the right hand side, and, and people like Lady Gaga. And I, I noticed something really, really quickly was that lots of brands in the entertainment space, like Madonna, had successfully reinvented themselves and had successfully won market share in every single generation or every single decade. And then the internet came along and they just stopped. Like they just stopped growing. And in fact, not only did they start growing, stop growing, but they allowed an insurgent, for example, Lady Gaga, to essentially steal their place in culture. 
So I learned from 10 years working in entertainment in Hollywood that this is what was possible. And then now I'm seeing exactly the same thing in the consumer brand space. So I wanted to kind of get into why is this happening? So first of all, the successful companies of previous decades are not having a good time. 52% of them have dropped out of the S&P 500 in the last 15 years. The average life expectancy of a Fortune 500 company has gone down to 15. I imagine after COVID, that's going to be a lot less. So what I hear all the time at Vice Media Group, companies coming to us, we have, a, we have an agency within Vice Media Group that's kind of like a Wyden and Kennedy or a BBH, or, and, and, and they're called Virtue. See what we did there. And um, we have brands coming to us all the time saying, we've sacrificed everything at the altar of scale, and now we've stopped growing. And we can't understand how that's happened. It's like we've literally bought every single thing that our media agency and Facebook and Google partners, inverted commas, have told us to do. And we've stopped growing and it doesn't make any sense to us. And we say to them, look, there's a playbook that you haven't been told about. So I'm going to run through it really, really quick. And we will normally say to them, look, why don't you start by defining three to five core truths that are radically authentic about your brand? Step two, why don't you detect a network of or community or tribe or whatever, different people call it different things. I call it community networks or growth networks for each of those truths. And I'm going to go into what I mean by those two things now. So Peter Thiel, I mentioned him earlier on, not a nice man, but a very smart man. At the start of the creative process, each decision you make halves or doubles your chance of success at the end. I think he's right about that. So here's my question. Does defining the audience you want to grow from demographically Double or halve your chances of creating good, good work and, and the success at the end. I'll give you a little provocation here. On the left-hand side, you have the Prince of Wales. And on the right-hand side, you have the Prince of Darkness, Ozzy Osbourne. Both of them are the same age. Both of them live in the same city just outside of London. Both of them have the same amount of kids. Both of them make the same amount every single year in, in revenue. Um, good luck creating a campaign or a piece of content that will speak to both of these people equally. So what we start to realize is, you cannot land a creative punch on a demographic. It's just impossible. It's like fighting a poltergeist. It can't be done. And here's the other thing. Not only can it not be done, but even if you do succeed in it, Gen Z and younger millennials hate it when you do it. So as you can see in this, uh, this particular graph that I've got in here, here from Vice Research, you know, if you start talking to people about their gender, their sexual identity, their economic status, their age, their ethnicity, all the demographic stuff, you've lost them. They don't give a fuck. Oops, sorry. Um, but you start talking about personality, values, hobbies, passions, you're in the game. So in other words, it's impossible to uncover a powerful insight. And we're all truffle pigs for insights, right? And there's only one test for an insight. Do the hairs on your arms stand straight up, right? So it's really hard to get to that type of powerful insight when you're talking about 21 to 29-year-old females living in these three markets, right? No one else outside of the brand world does this. And so if you want people to care at the end, don't make poor decisions at the start. And the number one original sin of all bad brands and why brands are not growing is because they start with demographic segmentation. It's downhill from there. So if I asked you guys to add me on LinkedIn, so I just ask, you know, just for fun, if you're listening to this, add me on LinkedIn, just type in Mark Adams Vice, add me on LinkedIn, and just hit me with what are you passionate about? Now, I'm certain we're going to get some crazy answers. I'm certain we're going to get cycling, we're going to get running, we're going to get... My, my thing is electronic music, you know, there'll be all sorts of great answers to this, right? But these are networks. This is what I mean by networks. And what's amazing is every single room you're in, including this room that isn't even a room, is a cluster of these networks. And there's an opportunity. When you realize that the internet is just this times a trillion, you're in the game. And basically, 
That's three definitions of the internet from the internet, which is super meta. But once you realize that the internet is just an interconnected set of networks, a network of interconnected networks, that's it. You start realizing that's the, un, the fundamental architecture that you're dealing with here. And if you're doing anything outside of that, you're probably getting it wrong with respect. So we say advice, and you know, in my previous experiences as, as someone who worked with celebrities and entertainment properties, we would say there are thousands of community networks out there waiting to be activated, and they'll give you all the growth you'll ever need. But you just got to become aware of them. So you know, I, I don't want to go into this too much, but Everything in life starts as an innovation. We've just been talking about some of them there. Um, you know, literally, you know, whether it's Taibao or, um, you know, you know, in, in, in any movement in culture, Black Lives Matter, anything, someone starts it. Then an early adopter group take it on. And if it's got enough cultural momentum, it crosses over into the majority. Now, brands, especially like your, your big FMCG companies, believe that you can put an idea into the majority in the late majority, into that mass bit in the middle by reaching frequency and efficient CPM, because they read a book called How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp, and that's what that book tells them to do. Now, the problem is, Byron Sharp is a very smart man, and we owe him a lot, but he fundamentally does not understand the architecture of the internet. What I mean by that is he fundamentally doesn't understand network effects, which is what I was talking about before. The companies that are growing and taking market share from the old playbook 20th century brands are ones that are creating new network effects that are more powerful than the, than the companies they're surpassing. And the way, the way they're doing this is they're realizing that everything starts as a niche. In the film Alien, one of my favorite films of all time, the alien that comes out of John Hurt's stomach isn't very big until it is, right? I mentioned Black Lives Matter. It wasn't very big until it was. Neither was veganism, and now it is. Neither was craft beer, and now it is. Neither was CBD, and now it is. And all day long at Vice, we get told, mm, yeah, Vice, yeah, thanks. It seems a bit niche. And we're like, guys, I don't think you're really understanding this. If you pay attention to tracking networks and look at the growth rate, it doesn't matter how small something is, as COVID has shown us, if it's doubling, at a, at a fast rate, like within 48 hours or a week, it doesn't matter. It's like the alien. It's going to start small, but you can guarantee it's going to be big quite soon. So advice, we're constantly looking at that. And we're constantly coming back to this idea of network tracking. And it's essentially a tsunami early warning detection service. But what we do is every year at Can Lions, we stand on the quasette saying, guys, 11 miles out to sea is a huge new wave that's going to wipe you out or you're going to have to MA your way out of. And all the brands say, ha ha, thanks very much, Vice. And the cycle continues. Anyway, so I'd ask you guys. Sure, sure. So I, I just like to, to you guys, how many of the um, how many of the networks that exist in culture are you guys tracking? You know, and that's what we where to ask ourselves. So we always say people will say vice is cool, and they say vice is cool, but they don't really know what cool means. Cool means conscious of other life. And what we do at Vice is we first, we say that our first job is to understand what are the networks that exist out there in culture, because the word culture doesn't mean anything. It's just a bunch of networks that create this thing called culture. And here's, for example, 400 of them that we're tracking right now across 26 markets, whether it's pottery or, you know, or stand-up comedy or winemaking, these things exist. So I would say it's not a case of getting rid of demographics, but it's a case of moving past them in a respectful way and realizing that networked communities and tribes will give you all this growth. So I'm not going to go into this as Lululemon, but with Lululemon, we said, what if the, the truths of the Lululemon brand on the left-hand side could translate to obvious communities and tribes on the right-hand side? 
So the Lululemon brand, one of its truths, as I said, find those five, three to five truths. They went a bit further here, but find the three to five truths that are authentic about you. And one of them is that Lululemon is a yoga brand. It's about breathing and flow, meditation, nonviolent, self-discipline. And so you start to realize that if you use machine learning, you can actually identify networks that exist in culture that are about exactly the same things and are using exactly the same terminologies every single day. So breathing and flow, you will definitely be wanting to speak to scuba divers or hip hop um, communities because they're all about breathing and flow. Meditation, you want to speak to the arts and craft community because it's not about knitting your own jumper because you're poor. It's about knitting your own jumper because you love the meditation of it. So we created a new platform called This Is Yoga, which connected all those tribes and communities under one platform and create insane network effects and allowed us to really double Lululemon stock price in one year and get Lululemon Athletica to climb 29.2% in one month. So this is what I mean when I say this is what the new insurgent brands are doing and, and it's really successful for them. Next step, and we're kind of near the end, is we demystify what each of these networks really needs. So you can go further. You don't just say, okay, there's a network called hip hop and there's a, there's a truth in your brand, which is that breathing and flow and those things connect. You actually think, well, how do we get their attention? How do we work with that network and, and make them advocates for us? So you say, right, well, let's find out what they need, what are they desperate for? And then let's design to create network effects through contributing contributing to that network and not getting too concerned about purpose or all that good stuff. Actually, um, you know, concerning ourselves deeply about how we can contribute. So I'll just give you a quick example. You know, with Smirnoff, they were sponsoring lots of electronic music events, but only 7% of DJs on stage are female, right? So you have the classic thing you have everywhere else, which is a terrible underrepresentation of DJs. So we said, what if Smirnoff said 50% of all the event, 50% of DJs at all their events uh, must be female, otherwise they'll pull their sponsorship. Straight away, I don't even need to tell you that we made beautiful films, we made beautiful expressions of this and ads and stuff. The idea itself was a contribution to the, to the, to the network. And so it started to spread, it spread to all of the other genres of music, it spread to Glastonbury, it spread to, um, and then it eventually spread to Tribeca Film Festival. So it shows you networks do what networks do, which is spread information. Final thing, develop entertainment to reach beyond the initial network. I've never heard anyone in Hollywood ever, in fact, I've never heard anyone apart from brands and agencies say, what is the addressable um, audience of prisoners who will watch the Shawshank Redemption or um, semi-professional or professional boxers who will watch Rocky or doctors who watch ER? It doesn't need to be about, you don't need to be a prisoner to watch Shawshank Redemption. You don't need to be a cop to watch True Detective, right? Only brands think that the thing you're making has to only be for the thing that you're making it about, okay? In real life, in outside of the brand boardroom, entertainment reaches way beyond these networks. So create entertainment and then deploy that as a movement at scale to create relevance and scale at the same time. And I'm just going to finish by saying you can market with a group of people and then at another group of people. And what I would say there is create network effects, starting with communities, build meaningful memory structures with them, because that's your most powerful memory structure is the community that you work with, and then blast that at the rest of the market. And that would be my humble opinion on how to do something in the new way and not the old way. I'm gonna zip forward to the end and just finish with this. At the end, I would say the smartest brands in the world, the new insurgent brands, are never stopping that. They're creating intellectual property that never ends. So they're debriefing and rebriefing and not ever saying, oh, the campaign's over. I'll give you an example. With uh, L'Oreal came to us and talked to us about Urban Decay, which is one of their brands. We identified a body positivity tribe that we wanted to speak to as one of the tribes under this new platform that we were building. And in that body positivity tribe, 
in the second round, once we originally launched the campaign, we said, well, we can leave this campaign here or we can go back to it and make it better. And what we realized was there was a lady within body positivity you may have heard of called Lizzo. Now, in 2017, no one had heard of Lizzo. But again, by network tracking and looking at content consumption habits and velocity growth rates, we were seeing that Lizzo was becoming more and more and more of something that was about to cross the chasm into the mainstream. So we said to L'Oreal, you've got to trust us on this. Lizzo is going to be big. And they did. They trusted us. And we put her in the campaign. Four months later, she was Entertainment Person of the Year in time. So every single time we do this, people say to us, you're lucky, you're lucky, you're lucky. And I'll just finish by saying, the more we practice, the luckier we seem to get. So I hope that's been useful. The final thing I'll say is, Perfectly good demographic statements are things like young people are selfish, French people are rude, Scottish people are misers with money. It doesn't lead anywhere useful. Beyond the fact that demographics are unhelpful, I think they're also potentially very dangerous. And I think they're underlining something that we don't want to be underlying as we start to evolve past them. Finally, there's a lot of companies, including Unilever and Vodafone, that are starting to get behind this idea and joining this thing called Unstereotype Alliance. I hope that the future will be a bit more evolved than the demographic uh, situation we've got right now. If you want to talk about it more, reach out to me. I'd love to chat to you. They're the seven habits one more time. Thank you so much. Cheers. I mean, Mark, we have to ask you back someday and do the same talk in three hours because there's so much in there, really, so much. Um, I'm, I'm sure me and David, we have all kinds of questions. We have time for about three, probably. But So I'll take the first one. And there we go. Um, what you described, how is this affected by what's happening at the moment? I mean, worldwide budgets from advertising and so forth are going down 20% or more. And, and at the same time, everybody's locked up at home. Everybody is digital. Every My kids are online 12 hours a day at the moment. I mean, it would be such an excellent opportunity to just throw more marketing or money or ideas at them instead of less. So what are brands doing? Why is everybody cutting their budgets at the moment? Because brands and their agency partners don't know how to do anything apart from communicate, they haven't taken on point four, which is design with contribution, not, um, not purpose in mind. So what they do is they communicate, 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 but they never learn to, so they have one arm, which is like this paid media arm about communication. And then they have this other arm, which is really emaciated and hasn't ever been trained in the gym. And that's the earned media contribution mentality. And all the brands that won during COVID and Black Lives Matter didn't seek to communicate. They sought to contribute. And so in order to contribute, you can't find a demographic to contribute to. You can, you can either communicate at demographics or you can contribute to networks. And so this theory that I've just outlined a little bit does help us to think about, well, where can our unique equity of our brand add value? And where can we be a hero? Where can we lead? Where can we present and, 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 and actually contribute? So that's what happened was that the smart brands contributed and the brands that didn't know how to contribute stayed silent and started to pull their budgets. And, and I can see that that's very smart of some of those brands. But we discussed last week a little bit, you know, the K-pop fans buying Trump tickets and so forth. I mean, it's also a bit, isn't it also a bit dangerous that brands become political activists, mobs, basically being able to steer some of our media this way or that? Because they st I mean, it's nice if they stand behind the point of view that, that you agree with, but they could also go the other way, right? I mean, it feels, I don't know. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there is something that's happening right now, which is this kind of woke washing where brands are constantly trying to 
find a new new kind of class of victims so it'll be like you know a tooth care brand will be trying to find people who have been teeth shamed and a and a and a, and a, and a, and a you know a, a, a cycle brand will be trying to find people who have been you know suffered from this or that kind of um, you know and i used to be a human rights lawyer i think we are in serious danger of um hollowing out the principles that underline um smart and, and effective um, communication around movements and, and, and protest and, and human rights by, by diluting it with brands that don't really mean it. You know, it's, it's worrying to me that in, in the big FMCG companies, they're being told, find your brand purpose um, and, the, and the reason that you exist beyond product um, or will divest, you know, a, a lot of companies are saying that. And it's, it's quite worrying. So I think that what, what you know, so there's a, there's a thin line, like you want to be able to contribute, but you shouldn't be contributing where you're not welcome and you haven't got authenticity. David. Yeah, fascinating. And I, I mean, I, I fundamentally agree with your, you know, the core positioning, which is that demographics, if they were ever useful, certainly are not very useful anymore. And, you know, so try and forget demographics more or less and, and leverage network effects and think about tribes of taste and interest and communities who are, who are interested in you know what you're trying to be interested in i just wonder how you see what we talked about at the top of the show and the whole thing with facebook and other massive networks how you see your vision or that vision playing out with with everything that's happening around facebook and all that because of course what facebook would say to brands is um yeah mark's right and, and we are the platform that can let you do that you know you can come to us and, and slice and dice, you know, every which way and find the exact community that's, you know, deeply about what you're about and target your messaging to them. You know, we are the network. So if you want to do this, then, you know, come and do it with us. And, our, and you know, they've got a, a case that that is the truth and that that is why they, they have won so large across the last 10 years. Do you think it's just going to go more and more that way? Like, is everything just going to get sucked into Facebook and Instagram? You know, Instagram will be another big platform. You can go and find people who are interested in what you're interested in. Or, or are we going to break out of that and have a more diverse ecosystem? Great question. And look, okay. the worrying thing is, you know, I, I, the the um, the truth is, the bottom line of it is, the reason why these networks are, you know, very, very difficult to say no to, no matter how it, it morally corrupt they are, um, the reason why, you know, a, a good majority of advertisers will stay, you know, advertising there is because they do get network effects there. And, and, and at the end of the day, we're living in a network effects economy. You know, it's essentially, it is, uh, it's a networked economy, right? So that is, that is what, that's the shift that's happened to us since the rise of social networks. Um, so yes, absolutely, those networks will um, unfortunately still play a big role, um, but that's why their valuations are so high. Um, but the one thing I would say is, and I think you mentioned it really well at the, uh, the beginning there, is we're seeing quite a lot of collapse of say community and commerce, and that can happen almost anywhere. So, you know, uh, you mentioned Tabo earlier on, but you know, this is happening, you know, within like, uh, closed dark social groups and WhatsApp groups. And you know, we're starting to, unfortunately, Facebook again, but we're starting to see that as long as, as long as you understand, and this is a controversial thing to say, but I meet digital, I was the chief digital officer of the, you know, this William Morris endeavor. And I essentially now I've done digital transformation for 20 years. And the one thing I say is if you come back to this idea of networks, you're never too far wrong because that's the North Star that kind of makes, it's the first principle that makes sense of everything else. So one of the things I would say is that you're not necessarily um, 
once you understand networks and you understand the networks that you want to speak to, you don't have to activate them. As, you, as I showed you with the, the Smirnoff example, there was no Facebook ads there. It was activating that network where you found them with experiential activity, right? Um, with, with Lululemon, we were putting billboards up outside, um, outside um, you know, uh, famous hip hop venues globally so that when people came out, they saw that hip hop was about breathing and flow and suddenly reconsidered yoga. So there were lots of ways to do it. Unfortunately, Facebook and the, and the likes of those are still going to be an effective tool in that toolbox. But I would urge anyone who's thinking about networks to go as deep down that rabbit hole as you can, because it will give you all the sanity you ever need and all the growth that your brand ever needs in this digital whirlwind that we're all spinning in. We have actually some questions from the audience. So I'm, I'm going to go with the first one. August is asking, he says, oh, well, from Vice Impact to Changing Corporated Division, what is next for Vice's advocacy platforms? Oh, David, help me out here. Advocacy platforms. Advocacy, yeah, yeah. advocacy platforms. Mark. Thank you. That's a great question. So, I mean, we basically, I think people know Vice. A lot of people's kind of memory of Vice kind of stays in maybe the early noughties or maybe the late noughties, depending on where you are. And they kind of remembered us as pioneering the documentary. So everyone said that Vice makes documentaries, or kind of documentaries and Vice kind of went together. And basically what we kind of realized was that according to those seven principles I just ran you through, I st we started to realize it isn't enough to just document the existence of these networks and these communities. Like at the beginning, it would be like, oh, you know, there's a network around, you know, the you know CBD, for example, when it first popped up or craft beer, you know, all these things that I mentioned. And we would go and document them. And then we started realizing, well, that's kind of only half the job. In fact, it's only maybe 10 percent of the job. So we started to say it's not enough. We have to help become a community organizer. We have to be a part of their story. We have to contribute. And as soon as we stopped documenting and started actually contributing and then documenting that, our business exploded. We went from a tiny little print magazine to a $4 billion business and, you know, the biggest youth media company in the world in 26 markets. And we bought Refinery29 and we bought Pulse Films and we started Vice News. And that was just one shift. It was just, instead of just documenting stuff, it was, let's earn the right to document what we did here. Not just, let's just tell, it's like, it's almost like, let's, let's not make content. We started to actually become quite skeptical about the word content. And for a content company, that's an interesting thing, right? We started saying the era of content has been and gone. It's now the era of contribution and context. So we find the, the spaces on the board that we want to own. And then we say, we're going to add so much value to that network that no one can ignore us. And they will talk about us in that network. And of course, Change Inc. is one of our uh, networks for the B2B community, uh, for helping brands. And uh, Vice Impact is our network for um, people who care about sustainability. But everything in our business now is about moving beyond just identifying and documenting and actually moving towards contributing and adding so much value that we create advocacy within that network. I think we have one last question for the audience before we go to our audience poll. We have one. Um, since human behavior or adoption of routines aimed at your needs is kind of the basis for innovation to be successful, this is Martin asking, what would that mean for the near future? Will we see a crazy boom of services making our lives more comfortable at home, for instance? I mean, what's new? I mean, what you describe has been true for quite a few years, but what's new? It's a brilliant question. Um, I, I would say that the long tail is going to keep getting longer. If you look at um, 
Netflix, for example, like they're not playing the hits model, right? Like in, in the world of entertainment, you either play the hits model, which is like you put everything into trying to have a number one album or you put everything into trying to have a number one single or you play the long tail, which is that you just build a community, you keep nourishing it, you try and extend that community to a new community. And that's how the new brands are building themselves. And what we're going to see in innovation is we're going to see lots and lots and lots of little new need states arriving and people starting to go, oh my God, because the, the first, the beginning of innovation is looking and having the awareness to see, oh wow, if you're a cyclist and you love going cycling every day, but you're currently unable to, um, what if you could take your bike and stick it on a thing at home and cycle on it without having to buy a Peloton, for example. So constantly, the more we have empathy and the more we um, understand the needs of these networks, the more innovation is going to come up. And I'll finally finish by saying I was chatting to a, a big, big company the other day that, that was in uh, beauty and cosmetics. And they basically talked, you know, we, we did something with them where we created a Sabrina, the teenage witch makeup range, right? For, for their, for their, one of their brands. And, and it, it sold out like that, right? Because the latent community of Sabrina, the teenage witch fans were fighting one another and buying this stuff on the black market for three times what it was worth on, online, right? So you and this is what Supreme and all these brands understand. They're like, there's a moment and there's a convergence of a bunch of networks here and we're going to drop a product that's so perfect right in the middle of that. And that is the long tail game of innovation. It's not the hits model. It's not the one size fits all, but it's going to be a way that brands are going to find lots and lots of little niches and win mass by, by a sophisticated mass of lots of smaller groups. Super interesting. Very interesting. Okay, before we move on very quickly, I just want to launch an audience poll. And I think this is maybe the most interesting question we've had as an audience poll, because the question is, should brands take a political stance? So go to the chat, you can answer yes or no. Should brands take a political stance? Like we just heard, we've seen a ton of it recently. Do you think it should happen or not? Yes or no? Go to the chat and vote. All right. Well, before Mark leaves, we have one more mission for him. It's time for our regular Next World interview segment. Roll the credit. Mark Adams, thanks to your outstanding achievements in the field of media and innovation, you have been chosen to be among those 1,000 pioneers to travel to the planet Next One. And before you undertake this thrilling journey, you must answer six key questions. So if we can, let's roll question number one. Question number one is, name one luxury physical object that you want to take to your new home. My bathtub. Done. I mean, I think we're just going to leave that there. because <laughs> I, I think it's better like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, we all like a bath. Okay, let's roll question number two. Name one exceptional person who should qualify to be among the first thousand pioneers with you. Ooh. Okay, this slightly links to what I was talking about, but my friend, my dear, dear friend, uh, Lubomira Roche, who's the chief digital officer of L'Oreal, I don't think anyone is pushing um, brands to do important, great work more than she is. And I also think that it all comes from the fact that she's a great human and she should be the leader of this new society. Oh, okay. That's a bold play. That's a bold play for a leadership claim there. I like yeah. it. I like it. Um, number three, create one law that bans something from Planet Next One forever and explain it briefly. 
There's an idea that John Rawls, the political philosopher, came up with called the original position. And it basically says that if everyone wasn't born yet and they didn't have physical form and, and they had to walk through a door and when they went through that door, they would get their physical form. But it would be complete luck what they got. So I might be female or male or able-bodied or disabled or, you know, whatever color of skin. And um, all, all the good thinking in the world comes from the idea that we could negotiate before we go through that door and we decide things. So we'd say, like, what happens if we go through that door and someone, one of us is disabled? What happens if one of us goes through there and one of us has this or that kind of impediment? Or, and so you would design a law. The law of all laws would be let's make it fair on the other side of that door before we walk through. And so essentially, that's a bit of a, a kind of trick answer, but it basically would be like, before we get to this planet, let's all negotiate on this ship and say, we don't know who we're going to be when we get there. So let's try and make it as equal as possible. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Question number four. And that, this, uh, that answer might also answer this one. Explain one truth about human nature or one ethical principle to live by that you've learned from experience that you think should apply on Planet Next One. I think it is that one. It's the idea that underneath our physical inequalities, we are metaphysically equal. Perfect. Right. Number five. Last week's pioneer was the um, digital thinker, Professor Pale Aurora. She had a question for you and it goes like this. She said, innovators typically design for the default user. And that's usually a white male who's middle class, typically living in the West. And obviously that neglects the overwhelming majority of the world's population. So how can we, her question to you is, how can we put the billions of what she calls the marginalized majorities at the center of our innovation? And how would that change innovation? I love that. Can I just say to her, what a great question. And, and, and nobody knows this, but Vice used to be called Voice. And we had to drop the O because we got sued. And it was precisely for that reason that we wanted to put those voices in the middle. Um, how do we do it? I think we, we become cool. So when I say cool, I mean conscious of other life. And we make our leaders, force our leaders to become conscious of other life. I don't know how we do that bit. But um, yeah, when people say the word cool, um, I, I always say that, that, that you know, it means to be conscious of other life. And I think that the more aware we are of these other, you know, other communities, other networks, the more we start to be able to design for them, the more we start to break out these stereotypes that we talked about with demographics. Thank you. Question number six. Identify a question to ask next week's pioneer, who will be Ifosa Ajomo of the Clayton Christian Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Ooh, brilliant. Love Craig and Christian. Um, okay, so I would say if liberalism isn't, if liberalism has got us, you know, through the past maybe 300 years, 200 and something years, it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily going to be the thing that takes us to the next, you know, 400 years. What is another system that's somewhere in approximately our orbit right now that we could think of that looks like it could help us now? Because I think if we're starting to see people move against liberalism and move against liberal values, which, by the way, I'm a massive fan of, but it seems that not everyone is. What could we replace it with that would do the job a bit better? Wow, deep question. That is that I'm looking forward to the answer to that. All right, thank you so much, thank Mark. Thank you. With those six questions answered, you can take your backpack, <laughs> get on the ship, travel to next one, and help the brands there leverage communities <laughs> and network effects to the best of your ability. <laughs> thank Amazing. you so much. Monique, I think we're running out of time. I think we are. I think we, we need to hand it over to the audience poll.
yeah, we have to walk, oh, head over to Ina. Ina, what was the audience poll? And well, this time the audience is not 50-50 as usual, but 85% uh, say they should take a political stance, which is good, I think. Okay. Okay. So, thank you so much for the super interesting talk you gave, Mark. Thank you for your time, audience. You watched us here today. Thank you for our partners, Accenture Interactive and Factor 3, um, as well as 23 and our media partner, T3N. Um, and I hope we see you here next week when Efosa uh, Ochomo is uh, talking to us. Um, as we heard already, he was a speaker at Next19. If you want to take a look, check out our website. There you can see his talk from last year. And we hope to see you for our very last show of the first season. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mark, for joining us today. Bye. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone. See Bye. you. Bye.